Stoicism is an eminently hackable philosophy. The easiest way to avoid failure is never to do anything in which there's a chance of failure. In other words, play it extremely, extremely safe. Stay in bed all day. You're not going to fail. You know, you're, you're not going to lose the game. You're, you're not going to, but, but it's a terrible uh, way to live a life. But that's the beautiful thing about negative visualization is it's like a, a lotion, you know, that says apply as needed. You can do it again and uh, it'll have, uh, it'll have the same impact. Hello and welcome to the Mindset Matters podcast. I'm Dr. Gemma Lee Roberts. What would you say if I told you that there was a mindset and a way of life that would help you to manage negative emotions and maximize positive emotions? In today's episode of Mindset Matters, I'm talking with author, former philosophy professor and self-professed outlier, William B. Irvine, about the ancient philosophy of Stoicism. Stoicism is often misinterpreted in modern times. Stoics are often perceived as being hardened individuals who will just keep pushing through challenges and glumly take whatever comes their way. But this doesn't represent the true philosophy of Stoicism at all. Ancient Greek Stoics deliberately exposed themselves to challenges and understood that getting comfortable with being uncomfortable are all par for the course in life. And although sometimes challenging, the payoff can be incredibly rewarding, especially when it comes to building resilience. Stoicism has made a resurgence in popular culture of late, and there's a good reason for that. It's a mindset that really works to build resilience and live what Stoics call the good life. Join us as Bill explains how Stoics were in fact the preeminent psychologists of the first century and how their strategies can change our lives today. Bill's book, The Stoic Challenge, is one of my all-time favourite books on building resilience, which is my research area. And in this chat, Bill will delve into simple ways that you can build effective and most importantly, evidence-based stoic practices into your everyday life. And if you enjoy this episode, check out the Mindset Matters Hub, where you'll find courses, resources and masterclasses designed to help you put some of Bill's fascinating insights into practice in your life. So, Bill Irvine, thank you so much for joining me. How are you today? I'm absolutely fine. How's your day been going? It has been very up and down. In true stoic fashion, I've had to rethink some of the things I've experienced today. I've got a poorly child at home and my day's been thrown around all over the place. So I'll probably delve into some of that as we're chatting as well. But I was I was thinking a lot about this interview and the reframing process, which I know we'll kind of delve into today. So I would love to kind of get started with what exactly is stoicism? Okay. I'm going to start telling by telling you what it isn't, because uh, if you look up stoic in the uh, dictionary or stoicism, the dictionary will tell you that it's a stoic is a person who is simply hardened against hardship. And so life can throw whatever it wants at him and he will just stand there and grimly, glumly take whatever comes his way. And um, the idea is that he won't express emotions. 
he will stifle them. And I avoided stoicism for decades because uh, I had that picture in my head. And then I kind of side trip. I, I explored the Stoic uh, philosophy and was astonished by what I found there. First discovery is that the Stoics weren't that at all. So the Stoics didn't say we should suppress our negative emotions. They said we should do things. We should come up with strategies so we avoid having negative emotions in the first place. And strategies so that when that first line of defense fails us, we minimize the amount of harm that that they do us, that, that these negative emotions do us. And at the same time, we should have an active program for increasing the number of positive emotions we experience. So uh, let me let me clarify that. Uh, negative emotions, well, they're, they're things like uh, anger, uh, grief, fear, anxiety. Uh, remorse, regret, what makes them negative? Well, they feel bad. They're the emotions that feel bad. Positive emotions, my favorite is is delight. The ability to take delight in the smallest things is an incredibly positive emotion. It can be present throughout your day, throughout your life, but it's also easy to ignore the, the potential of that. So for some people, a walk in the forest is just a walk in the forest and there are a bunch of trees. For other people, it's this marvelous place. And look not only at that tree, but look at the bark on that tree. Look at the things living on the bark of that of that tree. So another positive emotion would be feelings of, uh, of joy. And uh, they're hard to explain, but I'm sure you've experienced them yourself. Uh, and and uh, another, uh, another positive emotion is feelings of awe of, uh, for instance, when you're uh, walking through that forest that I just described, a feeling of the incredible events that had to happen for the forest to exist, that life had to come into existence, that there had to be a certain ecosystem, that geology and the climate had to cooperate in a certain way. And isn't that amazing? Uh, so a stoic walking through the forest is it's going to be just this incredible experience, whereas a non-Stoic, it'll be, well, it depends on their interests, of course, but it'll be just uh, just a walk in the woods. And uh, so in my own writing, I distinguish between what I call uppercase S Stoics and lowercase S Stoics. So lowercase X, S Stoics are those that are described in the dictionary. These are people who just grimly repress emotions. The uppercase S Stoics, have strategies for uh, preventing and, and uh, ameliorating any negative emotions they experience, and they have strategies for increasing the number of positive emotions they experience. So it's wrong to describe them as anti-emotion. They dealt with emotion in a very creative way. Uh, so, you know, Stoics were also, they had many interests. They were interested in logic. In fact, I first encountered them in a in a logic class, not in a, a regular philosophy class. And they had interest in science, uh, but they were also the preeminent psychologists of the first century AD. And they came up with these wonderful psychological insights. So my primary interest in them as a, as a philosopher myself is these psychological strategies that they, uh, they came up with. So the, the book, uh, Stoic Challenge, is uh, an examination of those strategies and uh, instructions on how you can use them in everyday life. 
And that's actually how I came to learn about your work was through your book, The Stoic Challenge. So whilst I was in the process of finishing up my doctorate, so my research topic is resilience, I actually read your book. And I'll be honest, when I when I kind of first, before I even delved into it, so when the book arrived, I wasn't entirely sure how it was going to relate to the concept of resilience and the world that I was researching. But I have to say, it didn't take very long for me to read, to get reading, to realise that actually, I think stoicism is a huge part of the resilience that we research today. So overcoming, it's not just overcoming adversity, but learning from that experience. And a lot of the strategies that I talk about when you're building resilience are exactly stoic strategies. So that's what kind of piques my interest in stoicism. Um, what's your take on how stoicism relates to resilience? So that kind of navigating adversity, but not bouncing back necessarily, but using that to bounce forward and learn something to help you get better or grow in the future. So, um, and there's lots of directions we could go from that thought. One of them is to think in terms of uh, failure. So let's uh, take a moment here to, to think about failure. Uh, so failure, they can be personal failures, they can be uh, professional failures, they can be business failures. The failures happen when, when you abjectly fail to get what it is that you want and are working uh, to get. And so failures are bad. It's bad to fail. Uh, and so uh, the obvious thing is to avoid failure. And now the Stoics uh, would agree with that. And they would say there's two ways uh, that you can avoid failure. The easiest way to avoid failure is never to do anything in which there's a chance of failure. In other words, play it extremely, extremely safe. Stay in bed all day. You're not going to fail. You know, you're you're not going to lose the game. You're, you're not going to, but, but it's a terrible uh, way to live a life. So the Stoics said, you should actually train yourself for failure. Part of your existence should be training for failure. Um, so you should go out of your way to do things that are hard to do simply so you can experience recovering from them when you don't achieve what you want to achieve, when you fail. And, and to a lot of people, that's crazy. You mean you should go out of your way to fail? Well, you know, these aren't huge failures. They aren't uh, life-ending failures. They're not interested in that. But smaller failures where um, you, uh, you compete, for instance. Uh, so uh, I'm a competitive rower, a single skull. And uh, you compete. Uh, I, I fail to win most of the races I'm in. Uh, but that's okay because I'm racing not so much for, for medals or anything like that. I'm racing as part of my stoic training. So in the stoic training and, and the real competitor, the real opponent when I'm racing is not the people in the other boats. It's myself. More precisely, it's what I call lazy bill. That's that voice in the back of my head that when I'm uh, training or when I'm racing, or when I'm working really hard, it's that voice that says, you know, you could slow down and you'd feel better. You know, you could just quit and think of how good you'd feel then. Um, so in some of the training we do, there's uh, one uh, interval training piece uh, that takes about four minutes to do. It's like rowing uh, a thousand uh, meters. And uh, I call it the four minute flu because before you start, 
you're feeling absolutely fine, absolutely fine. And when you finish, you're, you can't, you're short of breath, you can't talk, you've broken into a cold sweat, you, uh, your mind is barely capable of thinking and uh, in interval training, so what do you do? You do one of those, then what do you do? You rest for a bit, then what do you do? You do another one of those. And a lot of people would say that's just insanity, but a stoic would reply, you know what? It isn't really pain that you're experiencing. It's a better word for it is discomfort. Uh, and I'm a big believer, you know, when, when I assess my own situation, is this pain I'm experiencing or discomfort? Uh, discomfort is actually okay. If you never experience discomfort, you are guaranteeing that you will experience massive amounts of discomfort. And that's because you, uh, you will simply be living in this bubble of comfort. And as soon as you creep outside of that bubble, you will be uncomfortable. So imagine somebody who's, who grows up in an environment that's temperature controlled. They go outside and 60 degrees. Oh, it's cold out here. They go outside and it's 80 degrees. Oh, it's hot out here. Whereas uh, somebody who has trained has has explored the the has increased their their comfort zone won't even notice that the the temperature is uh is colder than usual or warmer than usual won't even notice aches and pains that somebody who has not experienced uh has not trained uh, for it uh will it'll be incapacitating so you know because of the the training i do uh, you know, if I lift weights, there's gonna be there's gonna be aches the next day. It's just part of it. And then somebody will come up to me and say, "Oh man, you know, today my knee is really sore." And I'll think about it, and I'll think, actually, I'm sore from my neck down, but it's just how it is, you know. And I'm and and I'm not gonna kind of worry about that. That's just how it is. And it kind of by doing that, I'm immunizing myself against a wide variety of discomforts in the future. So things that would make other people uncomfortable physically or mentally, it can also be mental, mentally uncomfortable, I won't even notice. I earned it though. It didn't just happen. I earned it by putting myself in situations where I would be physically uncomfortable or mentally uncomfortable. Mentally uncomfortable, for instance, I used to um, have fear of, you know, speaking in front of large uh, audiences. What do you do? Well, you, you plunge, plunge in and you start having that experience. And each time you survive, you say, oh, well, how about that? So you gain by failing in this way. You gain both confidence and competence. I call them the two, uh, the two C's. You gain competence because you're going to learn all sorts of new things in the process of failing. And by gaining confidence, you're going to become more resilient because you're going to come away thinking, you know, I just failed. Oh, what am I going to do now? Am I going to just uh, cry and wallow and tell people about the story? Now, I'm going to bounce back. I'm going to try again. I'm going to fail again, probably, but it's going to be a bigger, better failure than before because I will have learned from the previous failure. And one last thought on that is if you look up the biographies of people that we would regard as successful, lots of different ways describing success, but just business success. You look up what their, their bios, they are people who have failed an incredible number of times, except what makes them special is they weren't stopped by the failures. They learned from the failures and they went on. So 
And that's, that's the thing to do. But you know what? It's, it's going to take some courage and it's going to take some self-discipline to do it. Interesting. I love this idea of kind of deliberate exposure to challenges. And, and it's true. If we look at people who have achieved what we would consider amazing things, or if there's anyone that we admire, whenever you read about that person or delve into their history, there's always a kind of a string of what could be seen as failures at the time. But obviously, when you piece back and, and look back over someone's life, it's very clear that they're stepping stones or they're lessons yes. that people learned. But often when we're in the middle of it, it can feel like a failure. But I think it can be helpful to sometimes take that kind of perspective and look at it as part of the process. Not, I always, I always think of it as it, it's not the end of your story. So if you're writing a book about your life, this isn't necessarily the last chapter. Although we know there will be a last chapter at some point, which I'm, I'm sure is something you'll delve into as well. But it, it doesn't have to be the last chapter. So this could just be, you know, the uh, the interesting part of the adventure where things go wrong and then you figure things out and then there's another chapter coming around the corner that we haven't written yet because we haven't lived that yet which I think is an interesting concept so in in stoicism was one of the ideas that there you do deliberately expose yourself to things that are challenging or uncomfortable um this idea of kind of pushing yourself outside your comfort zone yeah, I think that, uh, and you know, a lot of people think, well, what does that mean? That that just means you take cold showers, uh, you know, that means you, uh, and, and there were these people called the cynics, uh, and s the, the original Stoic, uh, Zeno of Sidium, actually spent some time with the cynics, and so what would they do on a cold day? Uh, they would go around hugging statues, because the, the statues would be really cold, and so by hugging the statues, you'd be inflicting this sort of uh, pain on yourself. And I know Stoics who take cold showers as part of their Stoic training. I don't do cold showers, but I do thousand meter pieces in a boat. <laughs> and, you know, so think about a cold shower is it's there, it hurts, and then it's over. But these other things, I mean, what I'm out to do is bring out of hiding that voice in my head. That's the, the, the voice that wants to take the easy way out. I want to grapple with that being, whatever it is, hand-to-hand -hand wrestling, and I want to show it who's in charge. You know, another thing about the races is if, if you do something competitive, and suppose you, you undertake a, a 5K, a 10K, and suppose you come in last place, um, one thing you've got kind of in your back pocket is the, the knowledge that there were a lot of people who might have beat you that day in terms of, you know, the official scoring and everything else. But at the same time, you beat the billions of people who didn't even have the courage to undertake the project that you're on, to run that distance or to do that event. You know, and, and you, we all know, and, you know, during COVID, we had this, this whole business where you've, you've, got to, you've got this biological immune system and what's the way to strengthen it? Well, you've got to actually expose yourself to the thing that you're trying to um, ward off. You've got to actually go out of your way to expose yourself to it so you can develop a resistance to it. And that's what the va vaccination shots were all about. So I like to suggest besides a biological immune system, you have an emotional immune system. And to keep it strong and healthy, 
what you need to do is expose it to these irritants. You, you need to expose it to levels of physical and emotional discomfort just so you're ready. You know, when it comes along in life, when it isn't something you've kind of chosen, but when it comes along from the outside, your emotional immune system will be ready and able to deal with it. And it is interesting because if you encounter somebody who's led a very pampered existence, the smallest things can ruin their day. In fact, you know, it's puzzling because they will tell you that their day is ruined because a certain thing happened. And you'll realize that you won't, you wouldn't even notice that thing happening, you know, because, because how come? Because you have a very healthy psychological immune system that just goes right through that. Same thing, you know, somebody with, with all their shots and everything uh, goes into a room uh, with people who have, uh, you know, COVID, for instance, and walks out, uh, fine. Somebody who doesn't, uh, going to pay a price perhaps for, uh, for that. I love that idea of an emotional immune system. I, I think that is a brilliant way of looking at things. And actually, that's one of the things that I found in my research from a resilience perspective is that we need a certain, to become resilient, we need a certain amount of challenge. And actually, there's kind of, we think, we don't know necessarily exactly where that is for each individual or each individual on a given day. But we think from research, what we're uncovering is there's a sweet spot somewhere. So you need a certain amount of challenge or pressure or adversity to help you grow, to learn how to face these events, learn about yourself through those events and figure out kind of what works for you. And even the facts, like you said, building confidence that you can navigate something challenging or you can survive. But equally, there seems to be this scenario whereby there's too much pressure or too much adversity or too many setbacks. And then that can actually be debilitating. So it's kind of like we need this sweet spot. We need to figure out what that sweet spot is for all of us and build that into our lives somehow. And I find that in, in my work that people who have never come up against any kind of challenge before haven't necessarily had the opportunity to build some of those skills that help them navigate that. And, and that seems kind of aligned with the idea of stoicism as well, in that giving yourself challenge or having setbacks in your life or doing something that might be uncomfortable can actually help you to build those skills to navigate things that are uncomfortable or challenging in the future. Yeah. And, you know, it, there won't be one sweet spot that's universal. I think it's a very individual thing. And there is such a thing as as overdoing it. So you, you have to be judicious in your choice of, of how you're going to fail, what, what you're, what you're going to do. And again, as I said, you know, you, you don't want to fail in a colossal kind of way that's going to you know, it's sort of like if you're going to get vaccinated for a disease, you don't want a killer big shot because, you know, that could kill you. And uh, but you want you want to sample it. You, you want uh, some exposure to it along a slightly different path here. Now, you're in in uh, Great Britain and I'm, I'm guessing you're experiencing something like what we're experiencing in the in the United States. And that's this whole woke movement. It's not really a movement, but it's a kind of a frame of mind. And so on various occasions, I've gotten myself in trouble because people said, well, you know, if, if, if you could um, bring one of the ancient Stoics forward and, uh, and, and have him visit our time, what would he say of the woke movement and of people who say, you know, I have to be protected against 
hearing certain things, uh, being exposed to certain triggers. And so I said, well, you know, there's all sorts of different views, but I am highly confident that if you brought one of the ancient Stoics forward and asked them, what should we do? And their answer would be unequivocal. Oh, well, these people just need to be exposed and they need to learn coping mechanisms for being exposed. So, for instance, if somebody insults you, so in various things I've I've written, I've talked about insults, you know, you need to have a coping mechanism. The best possible coping mechanism, if you've been uh, insulted, is you simply shrug it off. You pretend like nothing at all has happened. And then people will say, yeah, but won't that just encourage the person who insulted you? Um, I suppose that could happen, but it can also have the opposite effect. And that is that person just hit you with his best shot and you shrugged it off. And he's going to, he's going to come off looking really stupid. You know, the other thing is I suspect that we're taking a class of individuals and pampering them and they're perfectly happy to be to be pampered. I, I'm not sure that's the best thing for them, though. And I think for them to want to be pampered in that way, uh, or for us to say, we want to pamper you in a certain way, uh, they should take offense at that. You know, why are you treating me like a child would be one uh, reaction. I need, I, I need to toughen up. Now, having said that, there are people who really do have uh, deeper psychological issues and are incapable of uh, doing that. My suspicion is, though, that there are a lot more people who could. There is another way. The Stoics would suggest another way, and, and that would be a good thing for them to explore. I think you're right, and I think they're trying to explore that as well. And actually, kind of on that note, what, is your, what are your thoughts on kind of building Stoicism for children or you know my world's resilience for children but I I think a lot of this applies the same in the same way it's something that I'm really passionate I've got two small children and my oldest little girl started school last September and when we were visiting schools that was one of the questions the poor teachers which all the teachers got asked about by me was about how do they how do they help to build resilience because one of my one of the things I was concerned about was that as much as obviously they're my the most precious things in the world to me, they obviously they are they're, they're my children. I also know from my own experience and from my research that if we don't face challenges as children, and if we don't learn that we're capable of navigating that, we don't learn some of the skills which can be really painful. It can, it can be hard. There's some of the skills required to help us build resilience to these situations then actually we do, you're kind of doing the child a disservice because they're, they're kind of key skills that we need in life. So my concern when my oldest little girl was starting school was finding somewhere where obviously they're safe and there's nothing major that's going to go wrong for them. But I, I wanted kind of reassurance that there would be, the children would be encouraged to figure out things and find solutions and not necessarily, basically not be too pampered to kind of use the word that you're just using, that's that's probably one of the words I use. What's your take on that? Yeah, so there's at least two different kinds of ways this idea can be explored. Uh, one is that childhood is 
you know, there, there's part of me that wishes I could be a kid again. And then there's another part that real, that remembers how difficult it is to be a kid, you know, life on the playground with all of the insults and, you know, everything that goes on. So there's a realization. Well, so one of the books I've written is called A Slap in the Face, and it's uh, an investigation of insults and how best to respond to insults. So that's one of the things on, on the playground or that kids experience, and that's uh, how to deal with insults. And it can be a very frustrating uh, time of, uh, of life. And uh, um, like I said a few minutes ago, w one of the best ways to respond to an insult is to ignore it because you make the insulter look like a fool. Now, you can top that by turning the insult into a joke by making it the basis for a joke that kind of turns against you. Know. So if somebody uh, uh, insulted me, I hope I would have the presence of mind, and this is uh, borrowed from an ancient source, but uh, to simply say, you know what, if that's the biggest insult you have of me, that shows you that you don't know me uh, uh, well enough to be insulting me. Because I'm, I'm much worse than that. And if that's all you've got, I mean, in other words, uh, you turn it around, you make a joke at their expense. The whole notion, and multiple people have said, you know what, childhood needs stoicism because just because of that, you know, it's a tough time of life. Once, once you reach adulthood, then uh, people don't insult you very often, depending on where you live, depending on my friends actually insult me, but that's a different kind of thing. That's a insult within a, a friendship. I'm not sure I'm the person to take on that challenge because it would be an interesting thing, you know, how to get them to listen, how to get them to pay attention. But certainly a parent with kids can, and the kids come home and complain that they, you know, somebody said something mean about them. There are certainly a number of, of interesting strategies that the Stoics have developed for dealing dealing with insults. And so, uh, you, you know, you could pass uh, those along. Another thing that's really kind of treacherous is that once kids get old enough to use social media, it's a toxic environment. So my kids were kids before social media existed, so I didn't have to worry about this. But there is this real question. You know, there are people who use social media. How come? Well, they want to share you know, share stuff with others, you know, share their, their hopes, their dreams, and so on. There are other people who are really, really bored, and all they want to do is crush other human beings. And so what they do, and, and do it behind, uh, you know, this shield of anonymity. So what they do is wait for somebody who's, um, you know, expressing their hopes and dreams and then crush them. And that's unfortunate that that exists. But, you know, among teenage girls, just the the depression rate, uh, and because it, 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 you know, the more the exposure to social media, the, the greater the chance of that. So it's a really brutal kind of insulting. I mean, the best advice is, well, don't use that. It's, you know, you're you're inviting uh, that kind of behavior. Uh, and there's a whole bunch of other uh, kind kind of negative thoughts I've I've had about uh, social media. And one other thing is. In America, it's referred to as free-range parenting, and that is you let kids be kids, you know, within limits. You let them take chances. You expect them to work things out for themselves. And there are a lot of kids who have grown up in an extremely supervised environment, both at home, at school, and at play. So when disputes arise, they don't know how to work it out among themselves. So they 
that they're that they what they've learned is you find the parent and then the parent settles it and so even when they're adults you know it's the same kind of thing of well so and so said somebody something mean to me so i uh, so somebody should straighten that out and so childhood can be a tough time but you can pick up some valuable skills there too so, uh, well, you know, also in childhood, think about all the colds you get and all the flu, all of the childhood diseases. You know, if you've got a young kid, if you've got a kid going to school, I used to call it the cold of the month club, you know, because yep. a kid I'm living that life a, right now, Bill. <laughs> okay. Okay. We'll come home with a new different cold, you know, and then suddenly uh, you'd, you'd have to deal with this a kid and you'd probably, you'd probably catch the cold as, as well. Yeah. So in America, we have this thing called free range parenting that says, you know what? Don't overdo it. Let your kid experience the real world because there will come a point when that's what the, the child will be uh, forced to do. Uh, but then again, you know, I know I was an overly protective parent. I I realized that in retrospect, I have two kids who seem to be flourishing. So uh, didn't ruin them, but that was back in the 1980s when, you know, the thing in the news was child abductions. And, you know, so that was the fear. And I thought, well, I'm not going to let that happen to my kid. So it's a very protected environment. It's again, you know, you find the sweet spot. You, you want to expose them to a certain level of stress, but not too much. Interesting. I like this idea of free range parenting. That's what I'm going to aspire to be. I don't always do an amazing job of it. Like I'm a child of the 80s. So I sometimes have to fight my natural instincts of, you know, being a bit overprotective sometimes. But I love this idea of free range parenting. Um, so thinking about kind of how, how if someone wants to kind of sign up to the Stoic Club, actually, that's one of the questions. Can I just be a Stoic? Do I have to sign up to the club? Do I have to do anything in particular? Or do I have to actually start practicing some of these techniques? Yeah, I've had uh, people contact me and say they want to become a certified Stoic. And then I have to say, well, you know, it, there might be somebody who will sell you such a certificate, but it's not worth the paper it's it's written on. Uh, you become, I, I refer to myself as a practicing Stoic. Uh, and so think about musicians. So musicians are always practicing. So uh, my son's fiance, for instance, is, is an oboist. And so... I would all when I would call him, I'd always ask uh, how how she how she doing, and and he would say, oh, well she's off practicing, you know, and I'd call again at different times. She's she's practicing, and I made the joke of ah uh, okay, she practices when she finally going to learn this instrument, right? Uh, and of course the answer is if you're a musician, you have to practice always, right, on a routine basis because uh, that's the only way you're going to get better. And it's even worse than that. If you don't practice, you're going to get worse. You're going to lose the skills. Same thing is true with stoicism. And that is you become a stoic. What it, you really are is a practicing stoic when you're consciously using stoic uh, strategies, stoic psychological strategies uh, on a daily basis. And you use them for a while and it becomes automatic. It just becomes the default. You know, if somebody insults you, ah, you're ready for that. If you encounter some sort of difficulty, some sort of setback in life, you know, and, and in the, the book, The Stoic Challenge, this is kind of the main theme I'm playing up. When, when you encounter a setback, what do you do? Well, one thing is you can say, well, this just isn't fair and it, it, this is terrible. And 
Uh, and at the other end, you can take the stoic approach and you can regard it. And this is an example of framing. You can say, oh, I'm being tested. Uh, I'm going to show how good I am at my problem-solving skills. And I'm going to get to the other side of this and to the best of my ability. And then I'm going to move on. I'm going to move on with life. So, so that's when you know you're a Stoic. Oh, and it helps to read the Stoics. It helps to read things about the Stoics. Uh, the Stoics themselves had a lot of, uh, of wonderful insights into, into daily life. And once you start doing that in a conscious way, I would call you a Stoic. And then I would say, and of course, what I mean by that is you're a practicing Stoic because uh, you will have off days when you forget your Stoic training. So for instance, for me, uh, one of the things I know I should be doing as a Stoic is uh, what the Stoic Seneca referred to as the bedtime meditation. And that's when you put your head down on the pillow at the end of the day, you should take a moment to uh, think about your day from a Stoic point of view. What did you do wrong? What could you have done better? What did you do right? And just a reflection. So you can work on your stoic game. And then there, with any luck, there will be tomorrow. And you get another chance chance to get it right. Now, my problem is that uh, in part because I do this physical training, when my head hits the pillow, I'm asleep within a matter of seconds. So, <laughs> you know, I have to have to work on that. I have to have to move that around to try to put that in a, in a, a different part of of the day. Uh, there's another stoic practice, uh, negative visualization, which is if you want your life to go better, think of all the ways it could go worse. And that's the quickest way to, to put it. And it sounds like a terribly depressing thing to do. But the stoic insight is um, by doing it, you will give yourself this uh, period afterwards where you'll realize just how good you have it. I mean, even if you're one of the most miserable people around, hey, it could be worse. Uh, you know, and I had somebody say, well, what about this? Uh, suppose you're being wheeled into the uh, operating room because you have brain cancer. What could be worse than that? And the answer is, well, it could have been inoperable brain cancer. So you can always imagine it worse. You don't dwell on it being worse. You don't fixate on it being worse. You allow yourself to have a flickering thought about how it could be worse. And then you will, for a time, it wears off, but for a time, you will fully appreciate the life you're living. You'll, 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 go, you'll say, boy, I actually, I actually am a pretty lucky human being. I find this idea of negative framing fascinating because we live in a world where I think there's so much talk of like positive framing or being very conscious of like what you want to achieve. So the idea is that then that helps you to achieve that. And I'm, I'm, not, necessarily, I'm not necessarily saying that's not a great tactic, but when I first learned about negative framing, my initial reaction was, oh my goodness, exactly as you said, what a terrible idea. Like, I'll just dwelling that. And actually, there have been times when I look in my life where I have dwelled on that, where I've been feeling maybe a bit anxious or a bit overwhelmed. So I guess the trick is doing that for a period of time. Like you said, it's a fleeting thought. So when something feels overwhelming or upsetting, or you're dealing with something that is kind of huge in your life, it's having that fleeting moment of what are the worst, a worst or, or the group of worst possible scenarios there could be. 
Um, but I'm absolutely fascinated because I, I've found this works really well in my life. So things like, you know, sounds really silly, but being woken up in the night by children <laughs> repeatedly for the last five years. Um, there have been lots of times where I've also had a little bit of gratitude of being able to get up in the night with them. That I, You know, I can move around things the next day if I have to, if, if, if they're exhausted or I'm exhausted or the fact that, you know, one day they're not going to ask me to do that. They're going to be probably, be, as much as I hate to say it, they're probably living somewhere else or worse, you know, that there are, there are many worse things we can even imagine that, which sometimes I find quite scary to go to in my head. But equally, I, I think you're right. There is nothing that makes you appreciate the moment and what you've got more than the stark reality of what life would be like if you didn't have that at all. Is there ever a way where negative framing or reframing isn't good for you? So do you come across people that kind of fixate on that too much? Yeah, I, I get uh, letters, uh, emails or messages from people uh, who, have, who have read my stuff and, and will ask questions. And so I'm actually capable. I have, a, I have answers to a whole bunch of questions. If they want to know what would the Stoics say, I can tell them that. But if somebody says they're experiencing intense anxiety, then I say, you know, you probably need somebody other than me answering that. And standard thing is to point them toward cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, which actually has slight variance, but it's a it's a talking therapy and with a long with a big stoic leaning to it. And so what it does is it it it, it gets people to think their way through the source of anxiety. Even then, in some cases. Um, you know, the anxiety has a biological basis and I'm going to take medication. But again, I'm not the, the person to, to judge such a thing. But if you're a kind of middle of the road person, you're going to have certain anxieties. They're, they're going to uh, come up and this can help you deal with that. And it is, it is a paradoxical, right? So I'm saying uh, you're worried that things could be worse. Hey, think about how things could be worse. You know, it sounds like I'm I'm just feeding the fire, but in fact, and again, uh, the you don't do it obsessively. You don't do it for long periods. You give yourself a moment to reflect on it. So, it was, so when I'm speaking before audiences, it, depending on the setup, and we have uh, one thing I'll do is I'll ask people to close their eyes. And uh, then, you know, once their eyes are closed, I will say, now imagine that this, that they were going to stay shut for the rest of your life. Because by doing that, you will realize what it's like to be blind. Oh, by the way, do you realize you aren't blind? Isn't that an absolutely wonderful thing? Oh, by the way, haven't you taken that utterly for granted throughout your life? But it's something wonderful. Uh, I just finished recently reading a book on, on stuttering. Uh, so, uh, and I'm a blank on who, who the author is, uh, but you know, it's my ability to speak words freely is, is something I've taken for granted all my life. But if you're a stutterer, any sentence you start is like this obstacle course where you're thinking ahead of, uh, are there any of the, the sounds you have trouble with? You know, is it the R's? Is it the T's? You know, is it the J's? Uh, and, you know, there are people whose name is might, might be James, and yet they stutter on J's. So you, you, can you imagine every time you're introduced, you do this J-J-J-J-James, right? That that would be your life. Okay, but you don't have that. 
the pandemic was really a good firsthand demonstration of all the things in life that you take for uh, granted. So there, some people in during the pandemic lost their sense of smell. Sometimes it was for a short period. But in the case of long COVID, apparently it can last for quite a while. Your sense of smell, ah, something you have taken utterly for granted. So what's the point of thinking about these? Because you'll give yourself a period of time when you aren't taking it for granted, when you're fully appreciative of these wonderful things in your life. Now, the thing is, it wears off because after a while, you will just start taking them for granted again. But that's a beautiful thing about negative visualization is it's like a, a lotion, you know, that says apply as needed. You can do it again and uh, it'll, have, uh, it'll have the same impact. And I think that's the thing. Once you learn some of these techniques, you can apply them every day yeah. in different scenarios. You know, I was using this today. You know, my day's been a bit thrown around today with a bit of childhood illness thrown in there and unexpected childcare and all of that jazz. And I could feel my mind kind of getting a little bit frustrated and, and going down the road of thinking about how to manage that. Uh, also being a bit tired as well. We've had a bit of like coughing in the night and, and, and all of that jazz. Um, but actually thinking, hang on a sec, I'm actually really lucky that I can do this. And I, and I have got the kind of job where I can juggle things around a little bit if I want to. And the fact that, you know, I, I, I can be at home and check that my little girl's okay. And and the fact that actually she is okay. It's just one of those, you know, childhood, one of the, the illness of the month at school. Yeah. And thinking about actually imagine if it was something much, much worse is what I was thinking today. And oh, as yeah. much as that is really scary. Imagine, uh, and this is true in some cases, you know, of, of couples that can't even uh, conceive. And you, you've dodged so many bullets. Uh, besides this negative visualization strategy, uh, there's another one, and it's called the last time strategy. So when things happen in your life, one of the things you can do is take a moment to consider, to, to realize, just to recognize uh, that whatever it is you're doing, there will be a last time you do it. And that's because you're mortal. But with kids, uh, I was thinking about this the other day. So I, I have a grown son, you know, he's like, he hovers over me. He's about six inches taller than I am. You know, when I hug him, it's like hugging a tree, a sequoia tree. <laughs> uh, and and yet, you know, uh, I realize now that there was some time when he was a kid that was the last time he sat on my lap. There was that event. So, uh, and right now, so here's a, a kind of a little exercise for you to do next time your kid comes up and you're sitting there and sprawls across your lap. Um, you know, it's easy to push the kid away and say, come on, I'm, I've got something I got to do. Uh, uh, not now. Can you do it later? But realize uh, one of those times will be the last. And that'll make you a little bit more, you know, when it happens of saying, you know what? This is wonderful. It feels inconvenient. Uh, the kid's a mess, you know. But I'm going to savor this moment because there will be a last time for this moment. And it can help you get through some tough times, you know, that otherwise you know, would be really challenging. And, of course, what you're going through, uh, the sleep deprivation is a huge factor. You know, you're doing all these hard things, but, uh, you know, in a sleep-deprived state, uh, and uh, some more power to you. You will, you will get out on the other side. You will look back. And uh, uh, for me, uh, you know, ha having kids is just uh, a life-altering experience in that it gets you outside of yourself. 
Uh, otherwise, you're you're stuck in yourself. But at the same time, having said that, uh, it's a really tough job, and unless you are fully committed to it, uh, you you would be doing the kid a disservice, right? Uh, and we have a we have a bunch of people on the planet already. We don't need more, but. So it's an, it turns into an interesting kind of uh, digression. But if you got the kids, savor the childhood years because they grow up. It moves so quickly. Like even my, one of my friends said to me recently that the best way to describe it is that the years are short, but the days are really long. Because sometimes when you're in it, yep. it feels really long. But you look back and I look at my five-year-old and she's so tall now, like the longest yep. legs. And, and I just think, how did you? How did that happen? I guess because we were, you know, life life is running by every day. And, you know, everyone's busy and we had the pandemic and well, even without a pandemic, you know, life just moves so quickly. But whilst you're in it and in the trenches, as it, as it were, with parenting, there's various other things you could be in the trenches with. You know, you could be in something really full on in your career or you could be caring for someone or, you, you know, there's various other things that we get so consumed about or in day to day that it makes the days feel long. But actually, when you look back, that time goes so quickly it's, it's it's sometimes really hard to put those two pieces of information together yeah and uh it does move quickly and i mean i've been doing uh this little project of of trying to remember uh, my early years and what's interesting is there will be some entire years that I can remember maybe half a dozen events in them. <laughs> but that's the interesting thing. You know, life is, is 24 hours a day, and yet some of it sticks. A lot of it just vanishes. But uh, the things that stick tend to be important events, um, good events. You know, we all, well, I know I, I have now, because I'm, I'm now uh, uh, 70 years uh, plus, 71, I guess, uh, years old. And then I, I think about, uh, you know, the things that have happened in the past. And, of course, that's all history. Uh, can't get that back. But, hey, if with luck, there will be tomorrow. Uh, another chance to get things right. Another chance to, to do what I'm supposed to do and to savor that day. Uh, another chance. Another chance. And what a wonderful thing. What a wonderful thought. And I think maybe that's one of the common misconceptions about Stoicism as well, is that it's a bit of a pessimistic way to view the world. And I think that's the perception that I had before I read your book, The Stoic Challenge. Um, because the, the, I guess the way we use the term stoic, particularly in the UK, yeah. is quite kind of stiff up a lip, get yeah. your head down, get through things. But actually, it's the whole thing I find, the whole philosophy, the concept is really optimistic. And there's, there's a whole yeah. host of thriving in there like how do we thrive in life what's your take on that you know how do we thrive in life and, and how does stoicism play a part in that or can play a part in that yeah there's a difference between simply being alive and thriving in the life that you're living so to thrive you feel like uh, your life uh has a meaning um and you know there there's a bigger question uh uh that we can get into and that is a whole meaning of life question but to you, it feels like a meaningful existence. If you're playing the role of parent, you have meaning. I mean, there's things you, you got to do. There's another life depending on you. Um, um, and in my, in my own case, oh, by the way, the, the ancient Stoics, this is one of the striking things, uh, had a reputation for being cheerful people. And, you know, that, that is just such a, a contradiction. Now, they're Stoics. They're not cheerful. They're the opposite. And that's simply because you don't understand 
um, you don't understand what they were. How could they be cheerful? Well, you know, there's the old uh, saying, is the cup, you know, half empty or half full? And a Stoic would uh, say, actually, uh, it's, it's half full. But oh, by the way, isn't water a wonderful substance? You can drink all you want and you're not going to gain any weight and it's going to be refreshing. And isn't glass a wonderful substance? It lets you see what's inside of it and, and it doesn't impart any taste to what's in it. And it's recyclable too, you know, truly recyclable. Isn't that wonderful? So in other words, uh, so it, looking at the same um, physical existence, physical world, as a normal person would uh, be seeing and experiencing this sense of awe, this sense of delight, uh, even even joy uh, in the existence. So uh, savoring life as opposed to merely living. Now, what allows that kind of savoring is an appreciation of life. So most people are stuck on this hedonic treadmill so they have an idea, you know, I'd be happy if only I got, and now you fill in the blank, a certain job, a, a certain partner, you know, a certain, I'd be happy then. And so they work really hard to get it, and then they get there. And you know what? They are happy, but it doesn't last. In some cases, it lasts for a minute. You know, in some cases, it lasts for a week. And then what happens? Uh, the, the treadmill starts up again, and they realize, oh, oh, there's something else that if only I had it. I would live happily ever after. Believe me, this time it will. And of course, the same uh, same ending. So the Stoics, and they were not alone in doing this. The Buddhists, for instance, came up with this same notion that there's this wonderful plan B. Instead of living your life always striving to get something better, you can live your life learning how to be happy with whatever it is you've already got. And it's just this profound insight, and it can literally turn your existence around into you feeling like I'm a victim of, of all of this, To Aren't I lucky that I got to live today, uh, and, and things, uh, things could have been worse. And I mean, what a happiness hack. And I'm not really a hack kind of person, because, you know, there's been so many things that are hacked, you know, little snippets of things, but, but genuinely... What a way to live, really, to appreciate the things that we've got. It doesn't mean we can't strive for other things, but it means that we're not constantly striving. We're living and appreciating what we have as well. Yeah. Uh, the, the word hack, by the way, Stoicism is an eminently hackable philosophy, which is why we've seen this just a massive growth in the number of Stoic books. So there are, are these components you can detach, like negative visualization, like thinking that something's the last time, you can detach them and use them and they will work. Now you can kind of make it a level deeper by putting it into the stoic context, by putting it into a deeper kind of approach to living. So when I first thought of it in terms of hacks, I found that offensive. No, that doesn't do the stoics justice, but it's true. And that for a lot of people, that's what makes it an actionable philosophy. It, it, they aren't just talking about stuff. They're saying, okay, today, here's something you can do. And you try it, and I'll bet you it makes a big difference, positive difference in your day. And if it doesn't, you haven't really lost anything, so give it a try. And that's what I loved about your book, The Stoic Challenge. It's just simple, but in a perfect way, not in, you know, there's so much to learn and there's so much to take in, but there's the, the examples that you use and the techniques that 
that you describe that people can kind of easily, so simply slot into their lives that could make huge differences like to the way that you see your life, to the way you experience your life, to the way you experience the world, I think is quite genius. I'm it's probably one of my favourite books that I've and I you know, if I could show you my office right now, you'd see books everywhere. So it's it's definitely one that I can't like definitely keep coming back to. How so thinking about kind of your experience with stoicism, if you could go back and tell your pre practicing stoic self something or give yourself one thing to do or to think about what would you do if you go back in time see i was exposed to stoic logic back as an undergraduate in college so i I guess i should have pressed on there so my advice would be simply you know if i traveled back in time would be to give the earlier me just some of these little life strategies and said you know what these stoics uh, besides, uh, so their, their, the logic they developed was propositional logic, which is the kind that is used in computer programming. So stretching it a bit, you could say the Stoics invented the computer. That's a big stretch, but hey, I'm going to go with it. But besides doing that, they, they had these wonderful insights into your daily existence, and you really owe it to yourself. Um, you can read uh, Epictetus, uh, and he has... The Enchiridon. Uh, it's a, it's short. It's readable, and you will read what he has to say and uh, come away thinking differently. You'll say, "Oh, yeah, if this is what philosophy is. I can do this." And then, then the Seneca and Seneca's letters, simultaneously, this wonderful introduction to what it was like to be living in Rome in the first century, A.D. and all of this wonderful advice. And he has, he has uh, other letters too. Uh, letters to uh, you know a woman whose whose child has died and she's still in grief three years after the death, and he has just this wonderful advice. He says he says, well, imagine that you never had those years with your child that you did have. Imagine how much poorer you would be. Or was this what your your son, if your son is the wonderful person you said that he was, is this what he would want you to be doing? Three years after his death, would he want you to be going around grieving or would he want you to be thriving in life? And don't you owe it to him? You know, just these really interesting psychological insights. So we think of them as as philosophers. Yeah, they were, but they were also the preeminent, like I said, the preeminent psychologists of first century A.D., and guess what? Human nature hasn't changed since then. So what they said back then still works. Uh, and I encourage your listeners to give it a try. You'll know pretty quickly whether or not it's working for you. Amazing. Thank you. And what are you working on at the moment? What's new for you? I'm working on a book on critical thinking, open-minded critical thinking. And it's very, very, very far along. And so it's my attempt. So so uh, the books on Stoicism were part of a project to introduce the world to Stoicism. Having learned about it myself, I thought, ah, I need to share this with the world. Uh, and so this next one is a logic book. It's a, a an attempt, probably a futile attempt, to get people to just be reasonable. But, you know, when, when I did the first Stoic book, and that was back in like 2008, and it's called The Guide to the Good Life, when I did that book, I assumed that maybe a dozen people on the planet would buy it or read it, right? 
but it turned out I was wrong. So have high hopes for this next one. Time will tell. You never know. And how can people find out more about your work or, or follow what you're doing? Well, let's see. For more of me than any human being should ever need, uh, I would uh, <laughs> direct them toward my WilliamBIrvin.com website. That's B as in boy. And I've got uh, stuff to read. I've got a listed podcasts. This podcast will be listed there when it uh, comes out if, if uh, you want more to listen to. And it's a way for them also to contact me. There's a, a messaging sort of thing. And I, I'm pretty good about getting back to people who contact me. Yeah, so I've done a, a bunch of podcasts. And, and it turned out that pandemic was a, had for me a silver lining because suddenly the world got very interested in stoicism as a, a kind of a way to deal with difficult circumstances. So there's a bunch of podcasts out there as well. Amazing. Thank you so much. It has been an absolute delight to talk to you. And I feel like I've learned a little bit more and hopefully people listening have learned a whole lot more about stoicism as well. So thank you. I, I, I really appreciate you taking the time today. And thank you so much for uh, ha having me as a guest. I, I enjoyed chatting with you. Amazing. Thank you very much. The Mindset Matters podcast is not-for-profit, supporting Blue Mental Health UK's resilience programme for young people. Each time you listen to an episode, you're helping teens and young adults benefit from getting the support they need to become more resilient. You can discover more about the Bloom programme and their impact at mentalhealth-uk.org. As you can probably tell, I find Bill's approach to stoicism fascinating, and I hope it got you thinking too. Bill's work has been instrumental in shifting my perspective over the years, helping me to figure out what resilience really is and how we build it. What I love about Bill's approach and the stoic philosophy is the practice of not ignoring the negative, but instead embracing it to build up our psychological immunity. Here's what I'll be taking from this episode. The next time I feel uncomfortable in a situation, I'm going to sit with the challenging emotions and acknowledge whether it's pain or discomfort I'm feeling. If it's painful, I might look for ways to make the situation stop or to change it. If it's uncomfortable, I'm going to make peace with it and remind myself the emotions will pass. I guess the idea is this becomes a little easier every time we face new obstacles. So the next time you face a challenge that you want to overcome or be prepared for, why not consider the Stoic Method and give Bill's book, The Stoic Challenge, a read? We only touched on the surface in the podcast today, so it's definitely worth checking out. Thanks again, Bill, and thank you for listening to Mindset Matters. Mindset Matters.